you very much. Um, I would uh, like to talk tonight about something that probably you're wondering what in the world is a surgeon uh, talking about lust. And I think you titled it Lust in the OR. That was really, it was hoping to draw large crowds. Uh, I'm not so sure that we succeeded in that, but uh, that's all right. Uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about um, something that's very, very important for the world today. And we don't talk about it enough. And we, if we're in the Catholic faith, we have a great heritage to help us uh, in, in understanding the virtues that are necessary and understand the sin uh, involved with lust and how that it affects us. And my life as a surgeon has been exposed to this, believe it or not, repeatedly. In fact, it's been an onslaught. It really has led me to contemplate this a lot as I've gone through the years as a surgeon. Uh, I just want to start with a definition, lust. It's the love of pleasures contrary to purity. It's one of the seven capital sins. I won't go over those. It's not catechism class here. Uh, it's really the only sin in that group, curiously, uh, according to uh, our mentor that we're going to study tonight, St. John Vianney, uh, that's really incompatible with staying close to Jesus. If you kind of played for just a second, if you think about the people who hung around with our Lord on this earth, he tolerated a lot of problems, people walking around with some pretty serious capital sins, envy, anger, greed, you know, various uh, of the other ones. In fact, even one who was so serious as to be a betrayer. And yet there was nobody who could ever remain close to Jesus who had a problem with lust. If someone came near him like that, for example, Mary Magdalene, she was healed and cured. A miracle took place, and she was no longer had a problem. Think of his family, the Holy Family, Jesus Mary and Joseph. Uh, there wasn't anybody who seemed to be able to be in his presence who had a problem with that. Now, this is an example caused the destruction of entire civilization, much less communities. Uh, it goes back to biblical times, God and Gorps, we don't know about what happened to Greece and Rome. Uh, now, we wonder, we wonder, I think, modern Catholics, whether there might be some problems in our nation. I think we're debating that right now, even politically. Uh, it's not when we're on television. And everybody's talking about, well, is it moral or is it? Uh, I think it is. Uh, it's the root cause of epidemic disease in the modern world. And I'm going to just view some of our fact with Kevin in touch with what's happening in the horrendous sexually transmitted disease. 65 million Americans have incurable sexually transmitted disease at this time. That's, that's amazing. That's, uh, that's one in every four people uh, in the United States. One in four new STDs occur in our We spend $8 annually to diagnose and treat them. And I'd like to review just a few of them. I don't have time to go through the uh, a medical school class with you tonight, but we'll review some of those that have a big impact on, on our world and our health. Uh, genital herpes, or the human papilloma virus, is the, is the uh, cause of it. Uh, one in four Americans have it. Eighty percent of them, mostly women, are unaware. Uh, for most women who develop cancer of the cervix, nearly all of the cases uh, are tested positive for HPV. Uh, it's transmitted to babies who are delivered vaginally, and it is incurable. It, it, along with other diseases, can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease, PID as we call it in medicine. PID is a result of untreated sexually transmitted diseases, and it leads to a host of problems which are also epidemic. Uh, 
ectopic pregnancies. We see more and more emergencies coming in now with ectopic pregnancies, and they can occur for many reasons, and they can occur spontaneously as well in a completely normal and healthy uh, woman as well who's living a very chaste life. But the majority, the far and away the largest majority are occurring because of diseases that are destroying the female pelvis. And uh, ectopic pregnancy definitely is a result of, of PID, pelvic inflammatory disease, in many cases. This uh, destruction of the female pelvis, of course, leads to infertility. And we have infertility clinics springing up all over the place. Um, chronic pelvic pain is a big problem. We see it a lot in our office and we operate on it. And it leads to acute and chronic infection as it festers and smolders away inside the pelvis eventually. Sometimes the only cure that can help the patient get over it is a complete hysterectomy, removing uterus, tubes, and ovaries. Uh, the uh, epidemic is also uh, reached astronomical proportions because of uh, various forms of sex that uh, have just grown in, in our, not only in our country, but uh, in other places of the, of the uh, industrialized world. And I'm referring to homosexuality specifically. Uh, we are inundated with all kinds of new anorectal diseases as well as systemic diseases. Uh, epidemics of venereal warts, condylomata cuminatum it's called. Uh, we have a lot of uh, other types of infections, uh, anorectal and genital infections. A tremendous number of rectal injuries uh, as a result of uh, these sexual practices as well as uh, uh, eventually uh, such uh, bad things as incontinence, um, rectal incontinence in men. We're, we're, uh, the, the next section is the one that's, that's just astounding. It's the scourge of mankind, and that's HIV, AIDS, and uh, hepatitis B. And I'll kind of just give you a few updates on where we're at right now this year on that AIDS. Uh, as you know, AIDS is the actual disease. HIV is the, if you have the virus, it doesn't mean you're infected with AIDS, okay? If you have HIV, that means that you have had a, received a contact from someone else, either through blood or sexual uh, contact, and you carry the virus. That does not mean that you have AIDS, which is the disease that is lethal. Okay? Now, AIDS also can be cured now. It's been actually lowered into the category of an infectious disease if you take your medicine every day. If you miss your medicine for one day, they take you off the medicine because you're going to die. So it's really a kind of a scary, you know, uh, thing because you have to be very compliant if you're, gonna, if you're going to have a chance of, of survival with the AIDS. But as you know, many people are, are uh, living long periods of time now due to the advances in medicine to help with AIDS. However, it's very, very expensive. This disease was, in, was first discovered in 1981 when I was a resident. I operated on people with AIDS not even knowing it, not even knowing that how um, potentially lethal their blood was to me. Um, and it was years before we later discovered what this disease was all about. What's the status of it uh, in 2003? That's the latest statistics available um, through the CDC. We have now had a total of 38 million people infected worldwide, 38 million. One million of those are in the United States. Last, uh, last year we had five million new cases diagnosed worldwide. And last year alone, three million people died of AIDS. So uh, there's, uh, th this is an unbelievable and staggering uh, epidemic. Uh, secular sources have called it the scourge of mankind. And of course, politically, we're committing 
billions to try to help in the other countries of the world. Entire nations are threatened right now in, in Africa. Hepatitis B, another uh, disease that's transmitted. Two-thirds of them are transmitted sexually, and uh, a majority, large majority of those are homosexual. Uh, this is actually a virus that's 100 times easier to transmit than HIV. It leads to chronic liver disease and uh, eventually cirrhosis of the liver, which is uh, the end stage uh, of the liver disease. And when you get to that stage, you either better try to get a liver transplant uh, or you'll die. And it also leads to liver cancer. Now, there's another problem that we've encountered that I experience all the time in, in dealing, counseling with uh, younger women in my office, and that's a postponement of natural childbirth. Uh, there's consequences to that. Uh, the human body in its natural form is not designed to have babies late in the reproductive career. Uh, and we, we know that. Why do we know that? Well, because of the consequences of it. It's not healthy. Endometriosis is a, is a disease that's rampant right now in the United States and in most industrialized nations. And we know that endometriosis is a disease that is, if we'll skip down under the treatment of endometriosis, we'll notice that the best treatment to this day is pregnancy. Uh, the, the hormones of pregnancy literally make the pain and problems go away. Now, there's a problem with that because as a woman does, does not use her body and puts off uh, her, uh, her childbearing until later years, uh, she may get this disease. Now, what this disease does is it implants the material that is in the uterine lining that's normally shed every month. That goes retrograde through the fallopian tubes and implants into the pelvis. And those little spots every month when you're preparing for the menses, they, that bleeds, okay? So that hurts and it causes scarring and chronic problems and it can scar the tubes. So if it damages the pelvis and scars the tubes, then you can get ectopic pregnancy again, okay? It also causes tremendous pain. These little tiny spots just cause unbelievable pain. And so this leads to scarred tubes, um, infertility problems come as a result, and that's a bad thing because many of these women are just, they want kids, they're just putting them off, and in the meantime, they're becoming infertile, and uh, you know, by the time they really want to and they're ready to have children, it's too late. They can't get pregnant. And, and then the other bad thing is this pain that, that you experience with endometriosis is most, it's, it's most heightened and, and worse uh, during sex which is dyspareunia. At the, at the, dyspareunia means painful sex. Uh, and of course, that causes a loss of libido or you know, sexual desire. And so it, you end up being kind of defeated. Your, your pelvis hurts so bad, you can't have babies. And so this is a bad disease. And I spent a lot of time having my life. We, just in our smaller community, we've just hired two more, uh, two new young OBGYN surgeons to help out with this, uh, to take over that, uh, that area of medicine as well. Uh, the best treatment, pregnancy. Uh, the next treatment, surgery to try to get, to allow a woman to become pregnant. Because if that's the only hope that she's going to be able to kind of spontaneously allow this disease to resolve. Otherwise, it may go on unabated, which again will lead to complete hysterectomy, which requires removal of everything, including the ovaries. Now, this postponement of natural childbirth, it's not natural. Okay, we, we know that this is the first society, the first time, it's our modern experiment. It's never happened before the 1960s. Okay? There's other countries that have been educated before where the age, average age of initial childbirth went up due to education, 
but not so much as we have experienced in, in modern times. Well, what's it caused by? Well, first of all, it didn't really happen. If you start to look at the incidents, it didn't really take off until the, the 60s. Well, as we're going to find out, the birth control pill came out in 1962. And uh, you know, this is the, by far and away the primary cause is birth control, abortion, and the consequences. And they're all related to one another. Uh, and there's other secondary reasons, of course. And this is changing priorities for women, uh, which is basically the model career first babies later. And uh, in highly educated societies, there's uh, in industrialized societies, there's more education. There's less need to have children. They have less children. This is just we've observed this throughout the world. Uh, and also that's been purported uh, among theologians that there's a lack of esteem for motherhood. And this has had a negative impact on the desire of young women to have children. Now, it's, it, not only is it not natural, it's not good. We already talked about why it's not good physically. Uh, but it also leads to a lot of other problems. Marital infidelity. If you're, if you're married, but you're not having babies, you have a, you're at much higher risk for marital infidelity. Uh, and this is a well-known fact all over the world. I go to Haiti. I work with poor women in Haiti, poorest in our hemisphere. And I, I know why, uh, one of the main reasons why they want to get married and have children. Children is very important as soon as they get married. And, you know, we have uh, population control people coming in from every organization uh, under the planet, you know, coming in to talk to them to try to not have them have children because that's our big problem in the world is poor people who have children, right? So, you know, that's what everybody, the United Nations, uh, all, all the way down to, uh, well, every organization that I know of that comes in that's a uh, government organization is, uh, is trying to control the population around the world and tie most of the aid to that birth control. So what, why do these women want to have, they don't get it down there. Why do the women want to have children? Because that's how they hold a man. If in societies like Haitian societies where, uh, or African societies, the men tend to be caballeros. They tend to you know, go out, get girlfriends. Do it. The way to get a man cornered and keep him put, keep him in the house and keep him helping and focused is to have children, so he loves his children, and he expands his love for his family over that of his wife alone. And poor women seem to understand that perfectly well that I work with. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why we experience more marital infidelity, which leads to divorce and single parenting. So um, we know that there's this problem. We know that there's disease and infertility, as we've already discussed. This leads to other problems. So if you can't get pregnant and your biological clock is running out and you're 42 years old and you really have to have that baby, you will do a lot of things. And one of them might be IVF, you know, in vitro fertilization. And there's ways in which Catholics can proceed in these directions. And I'm not saying all this stuff is bad. I'm, I'm making observations for all of you. There are certain ways that a Catholic can proceed in help, getting help to get pregnant when they're infertile. And when the goals are good, there are ways to do that. However, I know many Catholic couples who have fallen into this trap. They go for IVF. They get, uh, a, they get maybe even the Catholic way of impregnation. And they come up with uh, three or four or five or six fertilized ovum. Okay. Then they go through what's called reductive therapy. Okay. What is reductive therapy? Okay, that means you can't have 
six babies because they probably will all die. So you're going to have to reduce. Now, how many do you want? Can you have twins or can you have triplets? How many do you want us to reduce? Okay. Or abort or kill. Same thing. Okay. So you get trapped into having abortions even though your intentions were, may, might have been very good to begin with. Okay. Uh, this can lead to marital discord. Obviously, these are huge ethical questions, and you know, a husband might be involved with this, and then people are feeling, are they feeling guilty or shameful, etc. This can lead to discord. It's not the best way to go. It's also harder to have children when you're older. Trust me. You know, the older you get, I mean, it's uh, you start running out of energy. I mean, I, I think it's uh, they were you were designed to have when you had some energy when you were maybe you know, pretty young, but you get start, you start when you're in your late 30s. Wow, I mean, that's tough. That's tough to raise kids at that age. I mean, it's almost better to be, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's kind of hard. It's almost better to not even know what hits you when you're younger and just have the babies. And, you know, I think you got more energy to be able to get up with them at night and do things later on. It gets really, really hard. So it is hard. Not that it can't be done. Not that you can't endure that uh, and, and become a wonderful parent uh, at an older age. It's been done. But it's not the, the, the intended means, I should say. All right. Um, what does that do? Well, that leads to fatigue. And fatigue can lead to depression. And depression is much more common later on. It doesn't seem to be as common in, the younger, in younger women. Uh, it leads to anxiety. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety about not being able to have children. I mean, my gosh, you should see the anxiety in the infertility clinics. It's absolutely unbelievable. And, and this, of course, can lead to mental illness. And uh, I know many older women that I'm glad I'm not their kid because, uh, you know, if they're having babies when they're in their early 40s, they're already weird, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, they have, like, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, some people might call it mental illness, but, you know, these, some of these things are just neuroses. These are things that people... They get weird as they live alone for long periods of time. And see, what's the difference with a guy like me who's had four children? Well, they told me, Dad, you're weird. You can't, you know, put on those different pants. Those look ridiculous. What kind of a haircut do you have anyway? You know, see, because kids tell you the truth. And it's great to have kids to straighten you out. It keeps you normal. It keeps you grounded. You have to be around young people. Okay, so it's great for parents as they age, to have young people to kind of keep the balance right. I mean, these people who are living, uh, you know, on Wall Street, and then they decide, oh, I'm 42, I got to have a baby. I mean, these are weird parents, you know. I mean, they're not, they're not really ready to have a baby at all. They might be ready to have a baby Wall Street journal paper, but they're not really ready for, uh, you know, for a, for a real baby. So this is, this is not what, uh, the way it's intended by the creator, I believe. My observation. Okay, I want to go back to what... In my mind, and I have come full circle on this, okay, I have to admit that I, was, I grew up in the 60s during the sexual revolution. And I did not, like most Catholics, did not accept what our church taught regarding artificial birth control. You know what? I didn't even really know. I don't even know if I really cared. You know, that was, a, that was the attitude back then. And I was certainly in the mainstream on that one, unfortunately, um, to my eternal shame. But I, I do want to uh, let you know that I have come completely around on this now to the point where I believe the church is not only, it's not only right, it is right on, it is fabulous. Our teaching on artificial birth control is nothing short of miraculous, 
and I, I understand this now in retrospect, and I want to review with you a little bit about artificial birth control so that you understand where the church st stands on this and where you might stand or where you should stand. First of all, let's review a little history. This was uniformly and universally condemned as sinful by all Christian churches, all of them, not just Catholics, not a weird thing in the Catholic Church, all believed the same thing ever since the Didache, which is the manual for early Christians right after Jesus died that the apostles handed out. If you're going to be a Christian, you can, you can read the Didache. You probably got a copy of that, Chris. You know, but that is right in there. It details everything about birth control right there and abortion. It's never been accepted. So all Christians have universally condemned this since the beginning. But in 1930, the Methodist Church granted an exception for grave circumstances. Okay, that was the exception. That was the crack in the door. And then gradually, over the next few decades, each of the Protestant churches, one by one, began to give in and started to say, yeah, we think it's okay, too, for certain, you know, unusual and grave circumstances. Well, okay. Then 1962, well, nothing really happened, first of all, because there weren't any reliable methods for birth control until the pill came out in 1962. The only place that, I mean, a guy had to go get a condom, and they were not in most respectable places at that time. And in our culture back in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the places where they were, you, you didn't really get them there. You, furthermore, there was kind of a Christian culture that we lived in that you were a little bit ashamed about. You didn't really think it was right. You just had this feeling inside. Even if nobody told you about it, you had this conscience that said, I don't know, I don't feel right about that. So most people didn't do it. Well, that changed. 1962, when the birth control pill came out, the sexual revolution began. Everybody seems to agree it's what caused the sexual revolution. Before that time, if you had sex, you could get pregnant. And everybody knew that. Everybody. Didn't make any difference. What You'd have to go to school to figure that one out. All men and women have known that since the beginning of time. We don't know it now. We don't know now we got accidental pregnancies. I got pregnant by accident. Really? Didn't know that could happen by accident. You can fall off a cliff by accident, but you don't get pregnant by accident. But that's what happens in today's world. We don't, we don't even know that having sex produces babies. That's how brainwashed we are after you know, several generations of being contracepted. In 1968, see, our church, it's amazing, the more you learn about what happens, because the popes throughout history, in these encyclicals that are written, they continue to come up with a response. When man starts to go the wrong way, fortunately, the Holy Spirit seems to have a handle on the magisterium of the church, and particularly the pope. And then all of a sudden there's this encyclical that comes out that talks about this problem in the world. And this has happened repeatedly over time. Well, sure enough, six years later, here's Pope John, or excuse me, Pope Paul VI, who wrote Humanae Vitae. And get this, Pope Paul VI establishes a commission. It's the modern times. We're going to have, it's post-Vatican II, we're going to have a commission. And they're going to report to the Pope and with all these brilliant people and religious leaders and theologians, they're going to come up with what we should do about this burning question of birth control. Because every other church went with it. What the heck's wrong with the Catholic Church? So what is the commission? Okay, now there happens to be someone on that commission named Carol Wojtyla, okay? But 
The commission comes up with the recommendation to Pope Paul VI that they should go with birth control, that birth control should be okay. Well, I don't know if you've read Humanae Vitae, but I haven't come across that paragraph yet, you know, where birth control was okay. Somehow, the Pope wrote this thing, and it came out, it's not very long, it's one of the shortest encyclicals, it's, it's fantastic, it's, I think it's the most important document of the century, and hopefully, if Catholics can get, if we can get our act together, become the import, most important document maybe in history, because birth control has changed our world completely, I think more than any other factor. Uh, in that same year, there was another book that came out that the world followed. It's called The Population Bomb. I was, in, I was just uh, getting rolling in, in my education at that time. I was a young person. And The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich was studied on every college campus everywhere, and it was heralded as this phenomenal work that, was, uh, that needed to be discussed by everybody. And these two came out tandem. Okay, let me tell you. When Humanae Vitae came out, it was a bombshell in the Catholic world. I mean, it was on uh, the cover of every newspaper. Uh, the industrialized nations were in shock. They thought the Catholic Church has now really lost it. The Pope is completely out of it. He doesn't even listen to his own commission, and he writes this ridiculous ancient document that does not reflect the reality of modern times. This is what you heard in every newspaper. You couldn't believe the opinion columns coming out even our great universities, Catholic universities around the country. Uh, the clergy were absolutely disagreed. I, the majority of the clergy disagreed with the Pope on this one. And curiously, we have never heard anything in the pulpit, really, not much, maybe somewhere, tell me if there's somebody out here, God bless them if they're talking about it, like we're talking about it tonight, but you're not going to hear it in the pulpit. It was like taboo because the clergy didn't believe what the Pope was right. Okay. Let's talk about who was right after looking back 42 years. What's happened to us since? Well, first of all, let's talk about Paul Ehrlich. There has never been an author who has been more wrong about every point that he made than Paul Ehrlich. Every single chapter in that book has been dispelled as ridiculous, okay? And I read it in college, okay? He said, what's the problem? Well, the population projections predict, and he started with that, predicted a global catastrophe due to too many people. And it, it, simple, pure and simply went through chapter by chapter how all the natural resources would be used up. And, of course, since that time, we've, things have changed. We found all kinds of resources that we didn't know existed since that time. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the population projections. And the conclusion that you came to, you had to arrive at the end of that book, of course, and every college kid that I knew of arrived at it, in fact, most of America did, that it was irresponsible to have children. If you had children, it was like you were a mindless baby-making machine and you were bad because you were destroying the world by bringing children into the world. And that was the, that was the kind of the bottom-line conclusion that we all came up with, which means that children then, therefore, are a burden and not a blessing. That's tough when you're growing up in that generation and everybody thinks that you shouldn't be there. You know, uh, children, uh, we don't have that opinion about children, thank God, and, and you know, so I hold on to your faith because there, there's not very much good stuff out there outside our faith. So what's the solution of his book? Zero, ZPG, zero population growth. Okay, this has been spread all over the world. It's been accepted by every mainstream leadership uh, group in the entire world. 
I'm talking about, you wouldn't believe the billions that are spent by the, the big money people, the Rockefellers and the Bill Gates and the George Soros Foundations and on and on. The money that they give for birth control around the world is absolutely staggering because they really bought this hook, line, and sinker about the zero population growth. Oh, now this last year, we just discover that the United Nations, for the first time, put out a report saying, whoa, we, we got a problem in Europe. We're not having enough babies, and the economies are going to collapse by the year 2040 because there's no children to replace the workers. Italy right now is averaging 1.1 children. Now, zero population growth is supposed to be 2.2, okay, to account for it. That means a little over two children per family. We're at 1.1 in Italy. Italy is the birthplace of the Catholic Church. It's the worst in the world. Okay? Now, we're over two right here in America. We're having some kids here. Uh, but guess who's having most of the kids in the world? Islam, right. Okay. And Islam has got it figured out. How do you get converts to their faith? Have babies is the easiest way. We'll multiply the converts by, you know, more kids we have by two, three, four times in one generation. Well, Catholics used to do that, but this generation, you, I'm sorry, Catholics don't have any more kids than the Protestants. We don't live our faith. If that's part of our faith, we're not living it. You've bought into it, the perfect two-child family. You bought it, and it's a lie. Let's look at the world population right here. Why, why are we off? Why, why, were the, why was he so wrong, Paul Ehrlich? Well, if you take a look at the chart, you'll see that between the year 1750 and 1950, the world population quadrupled. Between 1950 and 2000, it tripled in 50 years. So it was during those 60s, 50s and 60s, people were looking at this rapidly rising curve and saying, oh my gosh, we're going to triple the world's population every 50 years. That means we're going to go from 6 billion in the year 2000 to 18 billion in 2050 and 54 billion you know, in, in, two, in 2000, uh, 2100, uh, and oh my gosh, that's impossible. Well, this was very, very flawed science because, first of all, the main reason why people, why the numbers went up so much is because of all the advances in medicine. They didn't account for the vaccines, the antibiotics, all of the improvements in medicines. People lived. It was the first generation where people lived. So we counted up all the people, even the aging and older people. We weren't having that many babies. So now we see that it's leveling off. And it's, the projections are that it's going to be really not much growth. And in fact, we, we've gone way below zero population growth in every single country in Europe. Right now, you don't hear much about it, but the United Nations has published it. It's available for viewing. And if the UN says that, you know, they've been covering up a lot of stuff for a long time. If they say we're in trouble in Europe, we're in trouble. Okay? And within one or two generations, we are going to be in trouble. The only way that the other countries right now are already solving their problem with lack of workers because there's no kids, and go to Europe. I just went to Europe, went to Rome this, this winter. You don't see kids. There's no kids anywhere. You just don't see them. And uh, what are they going to do to solve their economic problems? Boy, they have to bring in alien people from other countries. Guess who's having all the kids? They predicted by 2050, Islam will be a majority throughout Europe. They'll hold the voting majority in the democratic republics of all over Europe. Okay, let's talk a little bit about sexuality here. The difference between the modern view and our Christian view, okay? The modern view entails 
is all about me, selfishness and lust, my pleasures, how I feel, and all that. Okay? The Christian view is about different things. It's about charity. In other words, you have families because you go through suffering, you go through labor, you go through delivery, uh, and you have children, and you have several children, and you fill up the family. And it turns out beautiful later on, the big families, but it's, it, there's suffering involved and there's chastity involved, okay? Chastity is the opposite of lust, okay? The importance of marriage, contrasting the two. First of all, our Catholic faith tells us that marriage and the marriage act is for two things, procreation and union. And every marriage or sexual act is, by nature, has to have both, the procreative and the unitive aspects of that, okay? That's uh, big words, but simply babies and bonding, okay? That's what happens when you have sex with somebody else. I mean, it's supposed to. With contraceptions, you, you kind of, we separate it so that babies aren't supposed to be a part of the equation. And we just, we just want, I like the bonding part, but you know, I really don't want the baby part of it. So just, I'll, I'll take that pill and then I, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do the bonding part. Well, that's bad. Because if you're handing out pills to your daughters and they're bonding with people who they are not prepared to have their babies and be the fathers of the children, guess what? They're bonded to them. And we can't figure out why these people are living in misery year after year. There's, there's people in abusive relationships. Our women are getting beaten to death and they won't leave them. Why won't they leave them? Because God's right. It's procreative and unitive, and you cannot separate the two. When you have sex, both things happen. And guess what? You bond to people you don't really want to, if you stopped and thought about it for a second. So, no, I'd, I mean, I kind of like the guy. It looked good to me, but I never could see them as being the father of my, of my kids. You know, or I, I can't really, I can have sex with her, but I really can't see her as the mother of my children. Well, if that's the case, then why are you still going out? It's because they bonded. It's powerful, very powerful bond. So we have a society that believes in casual recreational sex. You know, let's go out, let's go to a movie, let's play tennis, let's have sex. You know, and uh, it's just a recreational thing. And, uh, you know, uh, the woman says, sure, why not? Uh, modern or the opposite. No, because, uh, you know, the guys say, oh, okay. Um, Modern culture no longer believes that people engaging in sex should be prepared to be parents. The accidental pregnancy I mentioned, oops. First of all, you can't get pregnant by accident. Uh, we have that concept because of birth control. But getting pregnant means that something has gone right, not that something has gone wrong. But when you start in a contraceptive mentality and a contraceptive society, you define it the opposite way. But biologically, that's what is supposed to happen. That's, that something's going right. It hasn't gone wrong. Contraception allows us to try to separate the act of sex from actually the act of having babies. And you, you can't do that, okay? I mean, you can try it. You can trick it, but it's not working. In fact, if you, how much has this contributed to our society? If you, asked, if you did a poll and you asked people to say, what has contributed the most good to our culture in this century, they would have a hard time coming up with the answers here, but a lot of people seem to pick contraceptives. You know, cars, computers, TVs, VCRs. They're going to check, oh, contraceptives, the pill is just fabulous. Boy, has that advanced our culture. So that's what we believe. Well, at least that's what we want, and we want to keep maintaining what we're doing. 
Let's look at this whole thing about contraception. I'm, I'm bashing it pretty big time up here, but let's look at some statistics here. Early predictions, we will be saved by the pill. This is the thoughts in the 60s. Oh, my gosh, everybody wrote about this. They said, oh, number one, it'll control our population crisis. Won't that be great? Secondly, it'll reduce the number of unwed pregnancies and abortions. And everybody agreed with that. That was good. And by the way, these are good goals. I mean, they're, they're, at that time, you're thinking, wow, well, if we could do that, that would be a really good thing. And then we thought, of course, because now we don't have to have the fear of pregnancy and couples can be free to be able to love one another and encourage the, the marriage act together. It'll be beautiful and uh, marriages will improve. This was the theory. Did it happen? Well, let's look at the data. Out of wedlock births, 6% back in the year 1960 prior to the pill. Now we're uh, sitting at about 24%. Okay, across the nation. Black culture, oh my gosh, it was 22% back then, now it's 70%. Okay, so we've got, and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, this can't have a good outcome. I'm just showing you some statistics here because the theory was it was going to reduce this. Further, and then they said it was going to reduce the number of abortions. Well, I can tell you that um, 80% of abortions occur in people who are not prepared to have children. You know, they're either never been married, they're divorced, separated, so they're not in a situation where they should, and of course that's why they're aborting. Uh, any, right now, if you have a, if you get pregnant as a teenager, 60% of those pregnancies are going to end up in the destruction of that child in the United States of America. One and a half million children per year are dying in the United States. And, you know, a lot of people said contraception does not lead to abortion. Oh, my gosh, we got in arguments about this because people would say that that's absolutely false. Well, I happen to have a source here that would tend to disagree with you. The, uh, the source is called the United States Supreme Court, and uh, they have said, gone on record, as saying that contraception leads to abortion. And these are their words. In some critical respects, abortion is of the same character as the decision to use contraception. For two decades of economic and social developments, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. United States Supreme Court. Case closed. Contraception, according to the words of the United States Supreme Court, is, leads to abortion, and abortion is necessary in case contraception should fail. Interesting that we should arrive at that conclusion. What about contracept contraceptives themselves causing abortions? Wasn't, I knew about the IUD in med school. I didn't really catch the one about the pill, even though I graduated. You know, did pretty well in med school. I, somehow they didn't teach me the, the way contraceptives works. The, the birth control pill prevents pregnancy by three different ways. It prevents ovulation, okay, and by altering your, your hormonal axis. It prevents the sperm from meeting the egg by changing the viscosity of your cervical mucus. But the third way, which occurs about 15% of the time, it's estimated, it, it acts as an abortifacient, okay. It causes an abortion because it prevents the already fertilized ovum, because sometimes a sperm will get through and fertilize an egg. 
And when it comes down, you'll prevent it from implanting into the uterine wall, which is an abortion. Okay? So the birth control, it's early abortion, but it's, but it's a human life that's come into existence and it's been killed while a woman. So how many abortions have taken place just on women who have taken the pill for decades? Don't know, but it could be staggering. We, all, we already knew that the IUD works every time by causing abortion. That's the way it works. It allows the fertilization. It can't, it's got this thing on the inside of the uterine wall, and it allows the uh, fertilized egg to just shed. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about the theory about living together, improving your chances after marriage, you know, and how, how contraceptives really help in that regard. Well, uh, it seems that couples now live together before marriage, and they almost routinely split up after marriage. Uh, we know now from statistics, many studies have been done, cohabitation leads to an 80% higher rate of divorce. It is not a good way to prepare for marriage to have sexual intercourse. Okay? You need a careful planning for getting married that does not involve the sexual attraction scheme. You have to use other more important means for choosing a spouse than whether you're just physically attracted to them. Divorce rates. Um, this is an interesting one because there's a, uh, a body of evidence that's not Christian. This is secular evidence where they have attributed 50% of the rise in divorce rates that occurred between 1960 and 1980 to directly to birth control. Okay? Um, this study revealed that birth control became available to women across the nation, it, not right away when it came out in 1962, but as more and more women gained availability to it and started to use it, it took probably 15 years before we, we believed that the society really had, according to polls, access to getting the birth control freely. And it was during that time that the divorce rates shot up, and then they seemed to level out just about the time that the birth control pill was completely available to women. So this led to a rather dramatic rise in divorce around the country. And we've already discussed the reasons about delaying childbirth and everything about why divorces might be higher. Single-parent families, not that a child can't be raised successfully in a single-parent family. They can. There's been great Americans coming out of single-parent families. But the evidence is clear that many of the problems and ills of modern society, whether it be juvenile crime, drugs, alcohol, etc., are clearly dramatically higher in single-parent family homes. Now, we've got 70% of the black culture right now, one out of every four in the white culture. I mean, this is a huge problem that's leading to uh, deterioration in our inner cities, uh, you know, safety issues, security issues. Uh, these are, these are, this is a serious problem that affects us. It's leading to some social chaos. So, in conclusion, contracept about contraception. Contraception's bad consequences, there's a lot of them. Uh, it facilitates sex out of outside of marriage, which is bad for marriages. It increases the incidence of sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, it leads to unwanted pregnancy and single parenthood. It causes and leads to abortion. It contributes to divorce and social chaos. Now, let's go back to where Paul Ehrlich was and this ridiculous document, the Humanae Vitae, back in 1968. And let's examine what Pope Paul VI said. I happen to believe it wasn't just Pope Paul VI that was speaking, by the way. But let's examine what he said 
about this that everybody laughed at back that time because he went in the face of all the evidence like people like Paul Ehrlich. He said in uh, paragraph 17 that there would be a general lowering of morality in our world as a result of this introduction of this evil. He said that men would have less respect for women because they would treat them as objects rather than revere them and the mystery of their fertility. Is that true, that women, that women are less respected by men? I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, we look at, at uh, our abuse centers that have been sent up, set up around the nation now, and, and men beating women. Not that this stuff did happen throughout all history, but it's gone up a lot. The Pope was right. The other thing is, he said that there would be coercive control by governments over sexuality. Huh. On my work in Haiti and working with the Catholic missions down there who refused to take government aid, you know, the ones because it had, it's tied every little thing that's going to help them, every article of clothing, every piece of food, everything that has to do with maternal health is tied to them being forced to take contraception. I see it all the time. It's present everywhere in the world. Bodies would become like machines in which women would want to have total control over their bodies. Have I ever heard that? Maybe like even in a political arena in the last few weeks? Okay, what about Catholics and contraception? You know, we could be very smug about this as Catholics and say, yeah, our Pope was right, all right. Well, wait a second. We got a problem here because Catholics aren't any different than the Protestants. We're not obedient to the church, and hopefully we'll appreciate tonight a little bit more about the truth of it so we can have the courage to become obedient. In 1960, 66% of Catholics did not contracept, and in 1995, 80%, I've heard that's even higher now, 80% um, of Catholics now contracept, which really is not statistically different than, than Protestants, and so we're right kind of in the same ballpark. Interestingly, I complained about the Catholic Church never preaching this in a pulpit and making us lay people sit down and talk with each other about it. How come if it's so important for society and it's part of our Catholic teaching that we don't ever hear about it? Well, in the Philippines, the bishops offered this apology, and I salute them, and I wish that our American bishops would do it. It said that when seeking ways, this was their apology, exact quote, to the people of the Philippines, the Catholics. It said that when seeking ways of regulating birth, only 5% of you consult God. In the face of this unfortunate fact, we, your pastors, have been remiss. How few are there among you whom we have reached? There have been some couples eager to share their expertise and values on birth regulation with others, referring to NFP. They did not receive adequate support from their priests. We did not give them due attention, believing then this ministry consisted merely of imparting a technique best left to married couples. In other words, it really doesn't have anything to do with us, priests. Only recently have we discovered how deep your yearning is for God to be present in your married lives. But we did not know then how to help you discover God's presence and activity in your mission of Christian parenting. Afflicted with doubts about alternatives to contraceptive technology, we abandoned you to your confused and lonely consciences with a lame excuse 
Follow what your conscience tells you. How little we realized that it was our consciences that needed to be formed first. A greater concern would have led us to discover that religious hunger in you. What a beautiful apology by the Philippine bishops. I wish that the church could have that attitude about it today. We have to demand it as Catholics. So, it's, there's all these reasons to condemn contraception, but that's not why the church condemns it. It's because we haven't given adequate consideration to the good of procreation and union in every marital act. That's why the church condemns it. It's not because of sexually transmitted disease. All those things are the natural consequences. And when God says something, he always backs it up, both in the natural and in the supernatural. It's a violation of the good of a woman's physical and psychological health. I, I don't have time to talk to you about what the pill does in terms of producing liver tumors and blood clots and ovarian cysts and breast tenderness, and blah, 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 and all the problems. I mean, it does. Uh, and it, or the impediment to total self-giving of spousal love. I'd like to go into the theology of the body, about what Pope John Paul II has written volumes about this and how important this marital act is in expressing nonverbal communication between partners. And when someone holds back, like in this picture, got the condoms behind him, I love you and um, I, uh, I give my whole self to you. <laughs> you know, uh, kind of, sort of, well, maybe. Uh, you know, but it, it, it's, when you have a, a, a sexual act of sexual intercourse, it must be that you're saying, I'm willing to have a baby with you. I love you so much that I'm willing to have a baby with you. I want to have a baby with you. I want to raise a baby with you. I want to send him to school with you. I want to save and sacrifice to send him to college. I want to be there when they get married. And when I'm old, I want our children to come and see us and be with us. That's what I want. That's love. Love isn't what, the, the, what our culture defines it as. The Pope talks about it at length. I'd like to go into it, but we don't have time. So, lust. Now, I can't just tell you all about all this bad stuff and not giving you some teaching on lust from some expert and not be able to go home with what to do about it. So, it, you know, I want to wrap it up by saying, okay, now we've learned about lust and contraception, sin and stuff like that. Let's find out what we can do about it. Okay, the root cause of the problem is this particular capital sin which is infecting the world. Why don't we know more about it? How can we help stop it? And what can we do to become pure and chaste, which is what the opposite uh, is of this sin? I want to introduce a saint to you tonight. This is the theology I want to leave with you for Theology on Tap. It's a brief look at the life of St. John Vianney. Uh, he's the patron saint of parish priest, by the way. He lived in the post-French Revolution era of, in, in France in 1786 to 1859. And this guy, this is a kind of a miraculous life because he was kind of a, they said he was really kind of stupid. He flunked his Latin and he really didn't pass all his exams to be able to become a priest, but the bishops decided to ordain him anyway because he was a, a good, pious man. So uh, he got, but you know what? They didn't want to put him in a place that, where he was too visible, so they stuck him in Ars, France, okay? Now Ars has a little village. We went there just this last year. We went and visited with our family. And uh, it's this little, it's still a little village. And it's in the middle of nowhere. You can hardly find it. You have to, have to ask people, where is it now? And you, can, you know, it's hard to forget the roads. And it's still a little small town to this day. And they put them there. They only had 60 families in this little town, but they had four taverns. 
okay? And he was assigned to this kind of sin city where nobody went to church, everybody drank and partied all night, and they were very poor. Well, why? Because they drank and gambled away all their money, and uh, that's why they were poor. Well, he came in right away and recognized their problems, and he just went, pitched in, and tried to help them out, became a good priest, and he started delivering these fiery sermons. And he'd stand up and belt it out up there, this little guy, and uh, he'd uh, have moving sermons, and he'd even cry when he, when he said it. They knew that he meant what he said. And the people started coming to church. He said, you've got to hear this guy. Well, pretty soon, uh, lives were changing. Uh, one of the guys uh, who had the tavern started to go broke, and uh, he had to sell the tavern to help out, uh, you know, uh, St. John Vianney helped him and stuff. And, and one by one, the taverns left the town, the people started coming. Well, it turned out that this guy had one of the most incredible, miraculous gifts of all time. He's considered by many authors as the greatest confessor of all time. He loved to hear people's confession, and he had this distinct gift to be able to read the soul or the mind, kind of like Padre Pio, where he could, they come in the confession, he knew your sins. He knew them all, he knew all about you, he knew what was going on. You kind of freak you out a little bit, but you had to, you had to say, hey, what about the one the other day when you did, you know, oh, geez, yeah, I forgot that. You know. So he knew, he knew all that, and this was an amazing confessor. And this little priest in this little tiny town, pretty soon people came from all over Europe. He stayed up. He went to bed. They said he went to bed about 11 o'clock at night. He'd only sleep till maybe like 1.30 in the morning. And then he'd get up and start hearing confessions all night long. He heard, I mean, this is, I quoted this from one of the books written by Dr. Father Rutler. 18 to 20 hours a day, he averaged in the confessional. He had 20,000 confessions a month, which is like a quarter of a million confessions a year. One priest. And... 100,000 pilgrims came from all over Europe, to, and they'd stayed there for days and weeks just to get a chance to go to confession with this priest. He changed their life in one confession. He was famous for these battles he'd have with the devil. And when we were there, we went, you go up to his room, they'd get in fights, and people would hear noises up in his room. He'd get in fights with the devil. I mean, we don't, it's a mystery. We don't quite understand this, but it's well documented. And they even, the devil even set his bed on fire. You go look at it. They still got it to this day. They haven't touched it since he died. And you could go in there and see where the burnt bed is and stuff. He tried not to spend much time in his room. That's why he was in the confessional. Um, many miracles. And he never credited to himself. He was such a humble man. He'd always credit to his great lover, St. Philomena. And he's the one who made St. Philomena uh, popular. No, this is a first century saint. who was, Nobody knows anything about her. But he said, oh, it wasn't me, it was St. Philomena, she's unbelievable, she just cures everybody. And, you know, he just did many, many miracles uh, in that church. If you go there, you'll see the wall just full of crutches and everything from the miracles way back when he was a priest. He's a patron saint of parish priests, and we viewed his incorrupt body, which is still there, perfectly preserved. His flesh is pink. His hair is perfect. He hasn't deteriorated one iota. And when I looked at that and I prayed in front of his body as Pope John Paul II has and many, many other parish priests who have been from all over the world to make pilgrimages to him, you know, I realized that God must have had some amazing respect for this priest. And so when I looked and read at what he said, I'm taking it for real because God gave me a stamp of approval and that's his incorrupt body laying right over the altar in his church to this day hundreds of years later. There he is. Um, Pope John the 23rd in 1959 did the encyclical on him, 
Pope John Paul II had a retreat for priests in 1986 and wrote a lengthy uh, dissertation on St. John Vianney, uh, who called him the matchless example, the remain, the, uh, who, as he remains for all, an unequaled model. He's got great sermons on the virtues, the last thing, salvation, sin, Our Lady, and, of course, purity, and, which is why he's, uh, this is pictures I just took when we were there with our family here this last winter. Uh, his rectory's up the upper left, and that's where the burnt bed is, and we tried to spend a little time. That's the bed in the lower left there, all uh, kind of beat up. And then that's his little church. It was added on when all the pilgrims started to come. Here's what he said. I'm going to leave you with a little, few words of his so that uh, you can, first of all, be a little bit afraid and scared of less. It's okay to have a little fire and brimstone in today's world. Um, this isn't a butterfly thing you're going to hear tonight. Uh, so uh, it's going to be uh, hard-hitting because this is the way he talked about it. On lust, he said, No sins, my children, ruin and destroy a soul so quickly as this shameful sin. It snatches us out of the hands of the good God and hurls us like a stone into an abyss of mire and corruption. Once plunged in this mire, we cannot get out. We make a deeper hole in it every day. We sink lower and lower. Then we lose the faith. We laugh at the truths of religion. We no longer see heaven. We do not fear hell. Does that sound like some of the people that we're trying to do battle with, sound like some of the commentators that we hear on TV, some of the attitudes that we hear about religion as it's being debated today? Sounds an awful lot like it to me. Remember, he was in a time where they executed 300 priests, Nobody, the faith was lost in France. It was in a nightmare when he was there. Very similar to our times. Okay, so I think he was very sensitive about what the real problems were in his time. And I think he had a lot of uh, application to our time. He said, oh, my children, how much are they to be pitied who give way to this passion? How wretched they are. Their soul, which was so beautiful, which attracted the eyes of the good God, as he always referred to God as the good God, over which he lent as one leans over a perfumed rose, has become like a rotten carcass, of which the pestilential odor, I'm sorry, rises even to his throne. So, my children, of all sins, that of impurity is the most difficult to eradicate. Other sins forge for us chains of iron, but this one makes them a bull's hide, which can be neither broken nor rent. It is a fire, a furnace, which consumes even to the most advanced old age. With one foot in the grave, they still speak the language of passion till their last breath. They die as they have lived, impenitent. For what penance can be done by the impure, what sacrifice can be imposed on himself at his death, who during his life has always given way to his passions. So this is a confessor who said a quarter of a million confessions a year, and watched a lot of people die. And he is there to certify, of all the sins that I have dealt with, lust is the most dangerous. It separates you from God faster than any other sin, and you can't seem to climb out. He said on impurity, See, my children, our Lord was crowned with thorns to expiate our sins of pride. But for this accursed sin, he was scourged and torn to pieces. So the next time you see the passion and you watch our Lord being ripped apart and the flesh being coming off his body, think of the sins of the flesh because according to St. John Vianney, 
the scourge of mankind today was scourged uh, to our Lord. And each of us with these sins participate with the Roman centurion in the act of scourging our Lord. For now, this crime is so common in the world, this is way back then, that it is enough to make one tremble. One may say, my children, that hell vomits forth its abominations upon the earth as the chimneys of a steam engine vomit forth smoke. He said, those who have lost their purity are like a piece of cloth stained with oil. You may wash it, dry it, but the stain always appears again. So it requires a miracle to cleanse the impure soul. And that's why I said when Mary Magdalene came up to our Lord, that was a miracle. She never had a problem with lust the rest of her life. Otherwise, how, how can I prove that to you? Well, there's one sin in our prisons right now where we will not, finally, we learned this because it's been painful, what crime in our society now is recognized as incurable? What crime takes place where we believe they cannot be rehabbed? Everybody agrees on it now. Sex offenders, right? Sex offenders. Sex offenders have to be watched the rest of their life. It's an incurable crime. Our society accepts that. So this priest was right. So the call to chastity, my friends. Chastity, the difference between chastity and purity, help you understand this. Chastity is an achievement, okay? It's avoiding the occasion of sexual sin. So it's a bodily thing. In other words, if you, you might, your mind might, might be messed up, you might be fantasizing or something, but if you just escaped and you didn't act on it, you'd be chased. You know, you wouldn't have done it. And I, you know, I'm so oversimplifying, and I know there's some disagreement, but I, but I want to step, try to get you to understand the difference between chastity and purity. It's something more that we do. Purity is a condition of our soul, and this goes way beyond chastity because it's in our mind, it's in our dreams, it's in our heart. It's something that God does. God gives us purity. It's something that's hard for us to create on our own. If we are pure, chastity is a piece of cake. Okay, acting on it, being, performing properly, no problem if you're pure. Okay, St. John Vianney wrote a catechism on the prerogatives of the pure soul. In other words, he said, if you're pure, you got a prerogative. you got something over the Lord on this one. He loves it. Okay, the fruits of purity are this. He said, my children, when a soul is pure, all heaven looks upon it with love. Pure souls will form the circle around our Lord. The more pure we have been on earth, the nearer we shall be to him in heaven. And that seems to match the observations of him on this earth, that it, you had to be pure to be near him. My children, we cannot comprehend the power that a pure soul has over the good God. It is not he who does the will of God. It is God who does his will. A pure soul with God is like a child with its mother. It caresses her, it embraces her, and its mother returns its caresses and embraces. Nothing is so beautiful as a pure soul. If we understood this, we could not lose our purity. St. Catherine once asked if she could see a pure soul, and our Lord granted that favor to St. Catherine, and she was so in ecstasy when she saw it, she exclaimed to our Lord, she said, if I did not know there was one God, I would have thought that that pure soul was God. And when she said that, that kind of goes in with what St. John Vianney said about it in the next sentence, where he said the image of God is reflected in a pure soul, like the sun in the water. A pure soul is the admiration of the three persons of the Holy Trinity, 
because you're, you're like a reflection. God bounces right off of you, and you go right back, and you're looking at God himself in the pure soul. Our Lord said in the, in, the, uh, in the gospel, happy, says our Lord, are the pure in heart because they shall see God. The source of purity comes from heaven. We must ask for it from God. If we ask for it, we shall obtain it. This is from the saints' words. We must take care not to lose it. We must shut our heart against pride, against sensuality, and all the other passions as one shuts the doors and windows that nobody may be able to get in. In other words, we have to guard our purity. And he talks about how do we guard it. He talks about the eyes. By only looking at a person, we know he is pure. His eyes have an air of candor and modesty which leads you to the good God. We think about it. Can we look at someone's eyes and really know about the character of another person? Sometimes. Some people, on the contrary, look quite inflamed with passion. And I think many of us who have had gotten hit on or whatever, you know that the eyes can do this. Satan places himself in their eyes to make others fall and to lead them to evil. So I have this slide that's my own to recognize where the attacks come from. Now, I'm telling you, we got a lot of them in our society. First of all, men, Internet pornography. If Internet pornography is a serious attack, this is like Satan himself coming into the privacy of your home, reaching up through your computer, grabbing you by the throat, and dragging you almost straight to hell. You have to be able to understand the threat that this is. If, if there's men who have problems with Internet pornography, you have to face this. You need to go to confession. You need to get rid of it because it will eat you alive. It will destroy your marriage and everything you have that's precious. Online chats. More marriages have been ruined because of people chatting with other people, you know, falling in love on the Internet, whatever. It's bad. It's dangerous. Phone sex. I don't even have to explain that. It's bad. TVs. Oh, my gosh. I mean, the kids, our teenagers are watching MTV, et cetera. It's just it's unbelievable, these uh, talk shows and, uh, uh, oh, reality TV. I mean, my gosh, reality TV is like, uh, that's kind of like licensed voyeurism, you know, where you get to pry into someone else's, you know, real life. and everything. I mean, Come on. It's like you can be a voyeur watching this stuff. Don't you feel weird doing that? Uh, this, this stuff is bad. Movies, you've got to take your movies, you've got to pick them right. You shouldn't be, have images burned into your mind that you shouldn't have seen. You'll be thinking about it. You're not going to be pure if your mind's contaminated. The advertisements are unbelievable on the television. I mean, beer commercials for ball games, I mean, I, I can't believe the stuff that they're showing right now. It's disgusting. Uh, the music videos, I, I, I can't imagine what this is doing to the souls of our children. Mag oh, the written word, the magazines... You can't go out, I can't get out of a drugstore or, you know, grocery store by seeing the magazines on the way out. Uh, the, the covers are unbelievable. I mean, you know, and just people are picking them up left and right, reading all this stuff. Dangerous. Uh, romance novels. Sorry, not good idea. You shouldn't be, you know, dreaming and thinking about stuff in your mind about other things, how it could be and how beautiful sex could be. No, that takes away from the uniqueness of your spouse. You shouldn't do that. Bad. Uh, advertisements uh, in, the, in the published, you know, all the stuff that you see, the pictures, bad stuff. Try not to look at it. Immodest dress of other people, not good images to have. Immodesty in our fashion uh, organizations. Uh, catalogs, geez, Victoria's Secret, are you kidding me? I mean, this stuff is really not very good stuff for people to be have laying around their house. I know they're just catalogs, but they're disguising images that should not be part of our culture. Drugs, alcohol, and parties. 
might lead you to bad stuff. Not saying you can't be there or whatever, but you got to be careful. This is where, you know, Satan's ready to, he's ready to attack. And uh, he, lust is his primary way to, to get you away from the good God. Peer pressure. I don't care what age you are, whether you're in, in a teenager or a young adult or older folks or whatever, who are you hanging around with? Where do you go when you go places? And what do you talk about? Okay, if you're hanging around with people that are not helping you get holier, think about meeting with somebody else. If you're going somewhere that isn't a good place to be, probably shouldn't be going there with that person, means you might need to change friends. What do you talk about? If you can't talk about things of religion or things of importance like that, you know, um, I don't know, maybe you've got to reevaluate it. If you sense that there's an attack, hopefully you're conscious, you've got to pray for it. You say, Lord, teach me. So I, wa I want to be pure. I want, you to, I want to reflect you. Uh, if you sense some sort of attack from any of these sources, immediately retreat. What was Eve's problem in the garden? Her problem was she listened to Satan, didn't she? She sat there and she listened and she talked and she dialogued. No, retreat, run away. If she would have been able to retreat immediately, she would have been fine. If you are a victim of lust and impurity, sexually fantasizing, that's impurity. You know, not saying you're acting on anything, but if it's, fantas if it's fantasizing, it's not going to lead you to the right place. It'll lead to self-sex, uh, masturbation. Premarital sexual intercourse, uh, internet pornography, marital infidelity, any of these problems. If you've got these kinds of serious problems, you've got to face your sin. Don't do it because... St. John Vianney says, if you don't face it, the sooner you face it, the better. The more you go, the less likely you're ever going to be to turn to God and to get help, and it doesn't sound very good for the end of your life either. So go to frequent communion, face your sin, pray about it, go to confession. That's what you've got to do. Get to confession, confess it to your priest. Then use those powerful aids, mass, frequent communion, adoration, Our Lady, the rosary, and, of course, the most chaste St. Joseph, who's great for the guys. Three things that he said, uh, wanted to preserve purity, that's basically the same thing. He also said, this is St. This is John Vianney, he said, another means is the reading of holy books, which nourishes the soul. So it's good to read you know, theology books, uh, books about our Lord, books about your faith. In order to have an idea of our dignity, we must often think of heaven, Calvary, and hell. And he's talking about the four last things. Many saints have said, contemplate the four last things every, th every day of your life to help you ground you as to where you're going, where you've been, and uh, what the reality of, of the eternity is. If you're single, avoid situations of temptation and concentrate on growing in purity. If you're married, stop all forms of birth control now. And by the way, that would go for the single people who are doing that. Start natural family planning methods now and avoid situations of temptation. I'm putting that a little lower because hopefully you're not tempted, you know, if you're married and, and, and have a spouse. And then the other thing is, our churches, we have all kinds of, everywhere we got these little fix the kids programs everywhere, you know, where we have all these programs to kind of make kids better. Well, children will happily be chased if the parents follow an example. We don't need fix the kids programs. Well, maybe we do now for a while because we're so messed up. But, you know, I, the point is we got to fix the parents first. What I'm saying is that you should be able, if you're naturally family, if you have natural family planning, you're not contracepting. Your kids will know this stuff when they're teenagers. And you cannot go to them and say, you know what, you really shouldn't do that. Or, you know, you have to be chased till you're married, etc. And you know what, they don't buy that. They're looking at you and saying, give me a break. 
you know, you get to have sex every night of your life because you're married, and uh, look at me. I, I, I feel sorry for myself. I can't do anything, so it's all about getting married. And you should be able to counter that. American Catholics can't do that right now because they don't have an answer. They're stuck. They've never practiced chastity since they picked up that pill. Okay? There's good reasons why people should be having babies and not be having babies. And parents should be talking to each other every single month about whether they should be having sex or not having sex. If they withhold in order to not have a baby, they abstain, that's fantastic. Why? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It makes people more in love with each other. If they stay away from one another, you all know that if you're away from someone, you just, it's great to be back together with them. It's the same thing in marriage. Natural family planning is so healthy. It's like dieting. Dieting's good for your body. You know, abstinence is good in marriage. This is a foreign concept for people who have been contracepting for 40 years. Okay? So you've got to get back to the answer to those kids, which is saying, look, don't tell me how hard it is, young person, because I have to go to bed every night with the person that I love more than anybody in the entire world. And I sleep next to them, and you know what? It's okay for us to have sex. God gave us that ability, and we can do that. But as much as I love that person, I love them so much that sometimes I hold back. I have self-control. I don't have sex because we deem that it's not right that month. Okay? Now, if you can say that honestly, you can say, look, you're alone. You're in your own bed. It's not that hard. You haven't found the love of your life yet. You can do it. With God's help, you can do it. Because it's not, it's, trust me, it's not easy for me, your, me and your father, me and your mother. We have, to, we have to work on this all the time. So chastity is a condition that every human being on the planet has to do. Not just young people. You're not alone. Everybody has to do it. And it won't end when you're married. It'll go your whole life. It's not just priests and nuns who do this. Young people before marriage. Married people after marriage. Priests, religious, everybody. All right, I'm going to skip NFP. There's some great stuff on NFP. You got to go to NFP classes. By the way, a lot of this stuff is from Janet Smith, Dr. Janet Smith. She's awesome. Uh, she has a, a tape called Contraception, Why Not? Uh, Chris, it would be great. If it, how many people heard of Contraception, Why Not? Okay, great. That would be great if your churches can distribute this. Fabulous. It just you know, goes over a lot of what we're talking about tonight, helps people to, to get grounded in it and really get excited about doing NFP. This is a great thing for uh, families, a great thing for marriages, and it's great for society as well. Um, so I, I just want to uh, end up with the last couple slides here. And, and uh, uh, the path to purity through natural family planning is significant. Women do feel revered by their husbands if they enter into this kind of exchange with them on a monthly basis. Men gain self-respect. They need that. Okay? Otherwise, men are just out there and they just, you know, I mean, in a contraceptive couple, they just have sex whenever they want to have sex. And it, you know, it doesn't, it's not much attached to it. It starts to lose its punch. And prime, it's a primary means that a man has to of achieving self-control. Self-control is necessary. It's a necessary virtue in order to do well in the world, to be a successful father, to be a successful leader. Okay, so, you know, women seem to be a little better at this, but men have to be challenged to this. And getting into uh, natural family planning is the best way for them to gain that. They'll have tremendous gains in their entire life. The act of sex then becomes a true act of love, as the Pope, as Pope John Paul II has written about. 
And, it, and that is so much better. That sex is so much better, it's, there's no comparison. It's not just some act of sexual urgency. It's a true self-donation. So marriages grow in strength. Bonds grow deeper than those who contracept. Divorce rates are lowered 1,000% in people who use NFP compared to those who contracept. That's pretty good proof that you should do it. Hey, forget the Catholic Church. If you, were, if you didn't believe, if you were an atheist or you're in some other church and somebody said, and you're about to get married, say, I got two things for you, way to go here after you get married. Uh, you know, and one of them here will have a divorce rate of 50%, and the other one will have a divorce rate of 5%. Okay? Which one do you want? You know, and they'd say, oh, I'll take the one with 50%. Come on, what are you talking about? You're not going to do contraception. You say, I'll take the NFP. I'll do it every time. Statistically, it works. Okay. Finally, the Holy Family. The Holy Family is our model of chastity. Mary, the Blessed Virgin, is the most perfect model for us, and she wants us to run to her. Okay? And don't discount what she can do, because many of us are trapped into these sins of lust, and we need to become pure. We would want to become pure. She is the purest reflection in the world that ever happened, and we've got to go to her. Jesus desires for us to know and love her the same way that he does. And then for the men in particular, Joseph, the most chaste spouse, he understands her struggles, believe me. He's been there. And he's an amazing source of strength for men. I refer you to also to Steve Wood's uh, work uh, and the St. Joseph's Covenant Keepers. If, you, if men, if you don't know about that, that's phenomenal. And uh, the teachings on St. Joseph and him being able to help in the areas of chastity is fabulous. I uh, really recommend that to you. Finally, I want to close with this quote from St. John Vianney, these, uh, this wonderful saint, about Our Lady. He had a special love of Our Lady. He said, uh, he said this, and this is why I want you to think about turning to her primarily. The heart of this good mother is all love and mercy. She desires only to see us happy. We have only to turn to her to be heard. The son has his justice. The mother has nothing but her love. God has loved us so much as to die for us. But in the heart of our Lord, there is justice, which is an attribute of God. In that of the Most Holy Virgin, there is nothing but mercy. Her son, being ready to punish a sinner, Mary interposes, checks the sword, implores pardon for the poor criminal. Mother, our Lord says to her, I can refuse you nothing. If hell could repent, you would obtain its pardon. The Most Holy Virgin places herself between her son and us. The greater sinners we are, the more tenderness and compassion she feels for us. The child that has cost its mother most tears is the dearest to her heart. Does not a mother always run to the help of the weakest and the most exposed to danger? Is not a physician in the hospital most attentive to those who are most seriously ill? The heart of Mary is so tender towards us that those of all the mothers in the world put together are like a piece of ice in comparison to hers. See how good the Holy Virgin is. So let me close and I'll take some questions. We'll say a little Hail Mary. Uh, again, in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen.
Any questions for Paul?